So here I am thinking, instantly I'm gonna die. He comes at me, grabs my arm, and starts pulling, saying, what are you doing? Like, we, we have to leave. I, I, I remember saying, Dad, look, let me introduce you to Scott. He's great, you'll, you'll really like him. And he's like, I don't want to meet, he's screaming at me, I don't want to meet that man, you come home now. And I'm like, oh my God, oh my God, oh my God. I'm, I'm even having heart palpitations telling you this story right now. <laughs> and, and by this time, I was scared. And I went up to Scott and I was like, Scott, my dad's here, 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 my dad's here. My dad's here. I was just like repeating this. I said he wants to be he's trying to take me home he's like why he's like because he thinks this is a cult and so this lasted a while and then Scott said um again what's going on I said I'm really scared and he goes tell him and I was like I can't and he's like why and I said I'm really scared I'm really scared I'm really scared and I just kept saying it and he breathed and he's like Paro who's making you scared I'm like my dad my dad my dad he's like but your dad's just standing there and he was really calm. And the calmer Scott was, the more frustrated I was getting that he wasn't understanding me. And I said, he's gonna kill me. <laughs> and then he said, okay, Paro, no one else is in this room. Imagine your dad is standing right here. It's you, it's me, it's your dad. Who's making you scared? I'm like, my dad. And he's like, but your dad's just standing there. And I was like, so you're not making me scared. And it's just my dad and me, and my dad's just standing there. And then I just, my, my face was looking down, looked straight into his eyes and was like, I'm making me scared. My name's Dr. Gary Crotez, and I'm a coach, podcaster, and award-winning author of The Idea Mindset, a book about how to figure out what you want and how to get it. The unlock moment is that flash of remarkable clarity when you suddenly know the right path ahead. When I'm in conversation with my coaching clients, these are the breakthroughs that are so profound that they remember vividly where they were, who they were with, what they were thinking when that unlock moment happened. In this podcast, I'll be meeting and learning about people who have accomplished great things or brought about significant change in their life. And you'll be meeting them with me. We'll be finding out what inspired them, how they got through the hard times and what they learned along the way that they can share with you. Thank you for joining me on this podcast to hear all about another Unlock Moment. Hello, dear listener, and welcome to another episode of the Unlock Moment podcast. My regular listeners will know that I have many world-class leaders and coaches coming on the podcast, and I also invite people who I like to call ordinary people with extraordinary stories. I love the power of vulnerable storytelling to help people to unlock their thinking, feel connected, and less alone and lonely in their own journey. After listening today, go and find my conversations with recent guests Megan O'Nan, episode 81, and Beatrice Zornek, episode 49. For today's guest, Paro Radia, 
there is much more to her story than what you see of her today as a highly successful executive strategist. But it is that story that has shaped her into the powerful thought partner to senior executives and entrepreneurs that she is today. Paro styles herself the C-suite whisperer, a sought-after executive strategist who helps her clients take control of their businesses, careers and lives while staying true to who they are. Born into an Indian entrepreneurial family here in England, Paru faced constant challenges that moulded her into a fearless conflict resolver. Over the years working for blue-chip organisations and high-performance leaders, she's gained invaluable insight into how to read the room and read between the lines to communicate with and motivate diverse personalities to achieve exceptional results. But today, we're also going to hear much more of Paru's origin story, the challenges she faced along the way, and how she overcame them to become the person she is today. And of course, the unlocked moments of remarkable clarity that helped her to figure out the path ahead. I can't wait to learn more. Pararadia, it is my very great pleasure to welcome you to the Unlock Moment. Thank you, Gary. I'm so excited you could come and you're dining in from New York today. I am. It's where I live now. Fantastic. Now, where do we need to start in your story to understand the person you've become today? Oh, there's so much to say. Um, I'd say when I was four. When I was four years old, um, that's when I first actually understood fear. That's when I understood that I had to be a certain way to stay safe. Um, I do come from quite a conservative Indian family, and it turns out my dad has a raging temper, a massive ego, um, and he's a scary guy. <laughs> he's also a narcissist clinically. I mean, it hasn't officially been diagnosed, but every single checkbox and every single list is actually checked when you, when you go through that. Um, and I quickly learned that if I didn't do as I was told and behave exactly as, as I was told to or expected to behave, um, as a four-year-old, I believed I would die. I know as an adult, looking back, that I wouldn't have died. But as a four-year-old, you can't make that distinction. So I was fearing for my life and anything he asked me to do or told me to do, I was the most obedient child that I have ever come across in my entire life. I was very, yes, sir, no, sir, three bags full, sir. I'm just going to say that's an extraordinary thing to say at the age of four. Were you an only child? Do you have siblings? Older brother, four years older than me. Um, we grew up in an extended family. There were many people living in our house. Um, it was also really clear to me, by the way, that as the youngest in the house, and no one was born in that house after me, um, as the youngest in the house and as a girl, so that's another thing about my dad. He believes women are, his, he believes women are property. He's even used those words several times, woman of property. Um, it took away the humanness. And I had been told several times that as a girl, I'm there to serve. I'm there to serve a man. And even as I got older, I was groomed to cook and clean because that's what a woman does. Because before she gets married, she needs to be groomed to be a good wife. And that's what a good wife apparently does. And there was, I remember there was this one time where it was, it must've been like the 50th chore he'd given me that day or that evening or that hour. 
And I rolled my eyes and sighed at one point, which God forbid you ever dare to do in front of him because he will absolutely flip out. I forgot for a split second and I did it and was absolutely lectured on. It's your duty to do this for men. You should be privileged to do this for men. Like you should feel privileged. You should feel honored that you get to do this for men. My mind was blown. I grew up in England. I didn't grow up in India. And by this time, oh my goodness, how old was I? I was, I think in my early 20s. And I just didn't get it. I'm like, <laughs> how is that a thing? So that was like the mid 90s. I mean, we're not talking about the 1920s here. We're in the mid 90s now. Something that I think is really important here, and, and I felt this, I've had many people on the, on the podcast who've had extraordinary life journeys, but actually life journeys that will resonate with an awful lot of people that are listening. It isn't my personal experience being a like male, pale and stale man, of course. And I think it's really important to acknowledge that to many people, they're going to hear this kind of story and go, that sounds unbelievable. I've never heard a story like that. And yet there are also people who are going to be listening and are going to say, I had that. I had something like that. That resonates with me. And many of those people are people who might never have told that story. And that's why I think it is so powerful to have people like you who will come and say, this was my story, this was my narrative. And I want people to, to, to hear that, that this isn't something to be pitied. This is something to open up and say, I had this experience and this is what I did with it. This is how it changed me over time. A question that I'm really interested in is, is did that environment for, for a time make you sort of compliant into it? And then at some point you went, no, that's not how I want to be. Or from an early age, were you, were you rebelling against that, that culture? Um, I didn't rebel from an early age. I, it was just, it was the cards I was dealt. I remember being at school and the girls would do things that I wasn't allowed to do. And they, and I'd say, oh, I'm not allowed to do that. And they'd be like, well, that's silly. Why don't you feel like you want to be able to marry who you want to marry? Because they knew that I would be I wouldn't have a forced arranged marriage, but I would have an introduced, highly encouraged marriage. Um, and I was like, well, no, it's, it's just the way it's done in my culture. And I was fine with it. Like I said, I'd sort of been brainwashed into, well, that's just the way we do it. We don't do it like the white folks. And, you know, my dad would even say that. At one point, I remember, you know, I just never really fitted Gary. I was too Indian to be English and I was too English to be Indian. So my dad would shun me for having British ways of thinking. And the school, the girls would make fun of me for being too conservative and Indian. Like, I just didn't fit. I, I remember this one point, um, my dad, again, was berating me for being British. Like, he used it as an insult. You're British, you're British, you're British. And so I took it as an insult, and I kept trying to be more Indian. And I was torn. And then one day I just flipped out and said, um, so my parents are actually from Kenya and they were under the British rule. So they had the option when the British left to either go to England or go to India. And they chose England because um, they were British citizens anyway. So they chose England. And I actually remember and, oh, I, you know, it's one of those things you say and you think, oh, I really shouldn't have said that because he got so mad and was it really worth it? <laughs> but I remember saying to him, if I remember screaming, saying, if you wanted me to be any more Indian than I am, 
when you left Kenya, you should have turned right instead of left. <laughs> and he was like, what did you say? I'm like, oh, I need to leave. I need to leave. I need to leave. I need to leave. <laughs> um, so it wasn't, it wasn't, um, I didn't rebel from a young age, apart from like a comment like that. And I think that was pretty much the only comment I made. And that was in my twenties and my early twenties. Also Indian girls in those days didn't leave home until they got married. So because the way my dad saw it was you're my property until you become your husband's property. And it's funny because saying that as I'm, I'm 47, almost 48 and saying that now I cannot tell you how much it makes me cringe. Like, Ooh, I am so rebellious about things like that now. And now I'm the one who says, what did you say? <laughs> I'm loving the authenticity actually. Um, so, so as you come into your, your twenties, um, and you start in, in the working world, so you're still living at home, but in the working world, you're, you're, you're building, I guess, an independence of thought and, and all of those things that happen as you, as you growing into your 20s. How, how was that sort of balance in your mind? So I think I was slightly schizophrenic, <laughs> not clinically. Um, so when I said I wasn't allowed to leave home, I wasn't even, me specifically, my friends were allowed, but me specifically wasn't allowed to move out for university. I was just waiting to be 18 so I can go to university. And I was being obedient. But then I I remember my dad saying to me, okay, so you're going to university. I only was allowed to apply in London because it was commutable. I wasn't allowed to go to Manchester or Cardiff where most of my friends went. And he said, um, so I applied to London universities. And then I thought, well, I could still stay in, stay in the halls of residence. And then when I got in, he said, do you want to stay in halls or do you want a car? And I was like, oh my God, that's not, I was like, halls, 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 halls. He goes, oh, that's a shame. I bought you a car. I'm like, damn it. And most people would be so honored that, wow, dad bought me a car. Gary, I didn't want a car. I wanted my freedom. So, okay, to answer your question, when I started work, I started on the graduate management program at British Airways. One, it was really hard to get onto. So it was a massive honor and privilege to be accepted onto a graduate development program like that. Um, they threw us in at the deep end from the very beginning. Um, and all my work experience up until then, apart from the um, one year industrial placement I did with British Airways, which by the way, changed my life too. Um, all the experience up until then was working for the family business, working at the shop or in the office. So I'd like to say it was a culture shock, but it wasn't really a shock. It was more of a, oh, this is new, let me explore. And I have a very curious mindset. Um, also being very obedient to authority, I think served me well in my early days at British Airways. Um, but very, very, very early on, they made it very clear to us that we've brought you in as smart graduates. We expect you to speak up. So in my mind, the rule was you don't get penalized for speaking up like you do at home. You get penalized for staying quiet. So we were highly encouraged to speak up. And I loved it. Like I had a voice. I was listened to. And like my ideas were implemented. And oh my God, you know how many people often say, oh, I can't be myself at work. And I'm really fake at work. And I can't be authentic at work. I, I, I can I just be myself with my friends and at home. It was the complete opposite for me. I couldn't be who, who I was at home. 
but I could 100% be who I was at work. I was opinionated. I shared ideas. I was vocal. Um, now, to be fair, I was an introvert. I caught up with an old boss of mine during the pandemic, and he um, he said something which surprised me. I said, but I wasn't like that back then. He's like, oh, you were. I was like, I was? He's like, Parra, you've always been feisty. I was like, have I? He said, you were definitely an introvert. You would say very little in meetings, but when you spoke up, we would listen. And you were persistent. You would not give up. If you had a thought or an idea that you felt strongly about, you were like a dog with a bone. You would just not stop. And in the end, you kind of got a reputation for being right. And you got a reputation for being persistent. So we just started listening to everything you said. <laughs> I was like, oh, that's good. <laughs> so that voice that came through then, that you describe as the real you, growing up, where was that? Because you weren't so able to express it externally. Was it still always there, but in your head? Or where was that voice? Um, it was absolutely there. It was in my head. And the times I did try and say it, I was told to shut up. I was told I was stupid. I was told, um, you're crazy. That doesn't make sense. So I doubted myself. I thought, well, maybe I am crazy. Maybe I'm not smart. Um, but... So like I said, I was scared of my dad. And so I was in survival mode. But my survival mode at British Airways was speak up or die. So I just did what I was told. And the only thing I could say is what I was thinking. And I was still like, oh, my God, they're going to hate it. They're going to hate it because I'm stupid. It took a long time for me to realize I wasn't. In fact, it took me leaving the airline industry. It took me moving to New York starting my own business, being bought out by private investors, then helping a lot of other people make money for me to think, oh, maybe I'm not stupid after all. <laughs> maybe I can, maybe I am smart if I've managed to do all this stuff and help other people do all this stuff. It's really interesting. I, I work a lot with people around unlocking and empowering their natural talents and strengths and I think what's what's so resonant in your story is that these things that came out of you in your 20s when those opportunities started to arise and people said please do more of that that is absolutely authentic real you and it's something that you're obviously hugely talented for you love it you know you can just see I mean people listening to this can't see Parra but I can see Parra and she is lit up when she's talking about this stuff um what's so extraordinary, I think, particularly in, in, in your story here is that there was this suppression for a long period of time. And so I'm just imagining when it came out, it probably came out in a pretty big way, or it felt like a big thing when it came out for you. Um, it really did. Um, I wouldn't say it came out in a big way, because again, survival mechanism, it was, it, it, I was too scared for it to come out. The realization was huge. But I was being very strategic. Like, how do I let this show without dying? I mean, I made some pretty bold moves and some bold statements, but I was also very strategic with when I said it, whom I said it to. Um, there was one moment where I knew I was going to stand up to my parents, but before I did it, I had spoken to a friend and said, who was away working for six months. And I actually called him and said, Hey, I'm going to do something and say something to my parents. 
they very well could lock the door and not let, let me back in the house. Is there any way I can crash at your empty place until you get back because I can't afford a hotel? And he was like, absolutely. And then we figured out how to get the spare key to me through a friend of his without, you know, and throwing my family off the scent. Um, uh, fast forward, they didn't throw me out at that point. Um, but I still, it was, I, I needed that safety net. I needed to know I had somewhere to live and I wasn't going to be on the street. I needed to know I could sleep somewhere. You've used some really strong language and I just want to, Make sure that I'm interpreting it correctly. So when you said, how do I bring this through without dying? What do you mean? What, when you say that, what do you mean? Um, so as an adult, I know no one's going to shoot me with a gun or stab me with a knife or strangle me. But when I was four and I was scared and I interpreted it as if I don't listen, I'm going to either get beaten up or killed. That stayed with me into adulthood, that belief. Now, on this side of adulthood, I know that wouldn't have happened. But when you're in it, Gary, you don't know that. Your emotions are high, the adrenaline is running, and it's like, what do I do to not die? What do I do to still have food? What do I do to still have a roof over my head? These are like real survival things. I was scared, and I'm. Like I do everything I can to avoid having to refeel that feeling. By the way, quick story there. I refuse to dress up for Halloween and it's a big deal here in America. Like it's not ghouls and ghosts. It's anything, any costume. The reason I don't like Halloween is because I don't want to be anyone else. I've worked so goddamn hard to be me. I refuse to dress up as anyone else. I refuse. And I'm good with that. I love that. I think it's, it's, it's really helpful actually, to, to understand that you're using this language in a very deliberate way. It's really meaningful for you. There's not a, a, a sort of throwaway, a turn of phrase you're using. I think that's important. And back to my point about there's a bunch of people who are going to be listening who are a bit like me who will go, this is not my experience. I want to understand it. I need to understand it. I need to understand this is many people's experience. And then there'll be other people who are listening who will really resonate with exactly what you said. And that's why I want it to make that really clear, actually, I think it's, it's so powerful. So bring us forward to what you think about as your unlock moment. I was 30 years old, still single and living at home because that was the dumb thing. Um, and I was single because every guy they introduced me to to get married wanted a housewife that would cook and clean. And I saw marriage as an escape away from cooking and cleaning. So I'm like, why would I do more of what I've already got? I'd write, you know, better the devil you know than the devil you don't. So I would keep saying, mm, he's not my type. Mm, he's not my type. And because I'd look at them and think, wait, there is so much more to me than, I mean, I'm a great cook. I will say so myself. I'm a great cook. Do I want to do it? No. And there was this one point we were got renovating our house. And because I'm the girl and because I was single, my room was used as the junk room. We didn't move out. We all stayed at home. And uh, my brother and his wife were there. My mom and dad were there. 
and they all had pristine bedrooms. I had a junk, like my bedroom was now the junk room. I wasn't getting a lot of sleep. And um, I was complaining a lot to this new friend of mine. And all I did was complain. And I didn't even realize I was complaining. And he said, um, hey, I've been on this personal development course. I think you'd find it interesting. So why he goes, you complain a lot. You're like very um, negative about this, this, and this. And I've always been a little bit sunshine. Like I hadn't been negative. So to be told that was like, oh, okay. And I'm very open to feedback. It's like, oh, well, okay. Tell me more about this course. And he didn't tell me much. Thank goodness. Um, but I trusted him and he'd done it and he's like, well, you'll learn to do this and learn to do that. And I've always been about self-discovery and self-development always, always, always. And, um, so I went on this course and it was like being hit by a freight train in the first five minutes, like straight. Like, Whoa. And you kind of can't leave because it's one of those things like, well, I want to see what happens next. Um, <laughs> In that they, um, and admittedly, it was quite cult-like. And if you didn't have your wits about you, it was very easy to get brainwashed and sucked in. And um, anyway, so I was there and one of the exercises throughout the first day was, um, or a few of the exercises and people went up and shared their experiences. And they were talking about how a lot of who you are today is because of your upbringing and the childhood and your relationship with your parents. And they may, they, they do stuff and then you realize you have some realizations and then they say, phone your parents and tell them that this is how you've been feeling and this is how you've been thinking, but you want to start afresh and it's okay. And if you hated them, tell them, but tell them you forgive them and you love them, but you know, mean it, et cetera, et cetera. So anyway, my family is the kind of family where no one says, I love you. No one says I'm proud of you. It's just not the way we operate. And we don't phone each other to tell each other things other than barking orders at each other. Like, I need this. I want that. What time are you going to be home for dinner? What time, what's for dinner? What's, when's it going to be ready? Like nothing else. Or I was asking for permission to spend money that I don't. Like there was a, there was a huge control over, over my finances as well. Um, like I'm 30 years old, not being able to do things that most people do at 18. Gary, I was so scared when his name was Scott. I remembered his name, Scott. I won't say his last name for confidentiality because you're not meant to, but I do remember it. <laughs> and he said, go and phone your parents. I, I, I just froze. Like even now I want to start biting my nails while telling you the story. I just froze. I'm like, oh, I can't do that. I, I just can't do that. And you weren't allowed to do the next part. Like they were so strict. You couldn't do the next part of the course unless you completed that, that exercise. Like they were like forcing you to do it. <laughs> I know, I know different now, but anyway, they were forcing you to do it. And, um, I, oh my God, I, I, I want to use very profane language right now. I was that scared, but it's a podcast for the public. So I'm refraining from swearing, <laughs> but, um, I remember calling my dad they were shopping for curtains in John Lewis. Cause I asked them where they were now when John Lewis. And I remember following this script saying, dad, growing up when you did this and said this, I hated it. And I felt this and I thought you hated me. And 
blah, blah, blah. And I, I was crying and crying. The emotion was so raw and I was crying and crying. And I said, but I realize now you do it because you love me. You do it because you're protecting me and you're doing the best you can. And I forgive you and, you know, moving forward and blah, blah. And he was like, where are you? Where are you? Where are you? I'm like, oh, I'm, you know, on this. Where are you? Like exactly where are you? I had managed to go on this course, by the way, and not tell them exactly what it was or where it was because I knew they'd not approve. And I managed to negotiate staying in a local hotel for my safety <laughs> rather than the brain space. Because I said, oh, I shouldn't be really coming home at, on the train at 10 o'clock at night. So I'm going to stay in a hotel. I don't know how I managed to convince them because I was a terrible liar. I still am. But I managed to convince them to have me stay in a hotel. And I didn't tell him where I was. It turns out he didn't hear anything I said. But what he did interpret it as is, I'm about to kill myself. So he's now in Papa Bear, I need to save my child mode. He figured out which friend would know where I was. I only told one person where I was. He figured out which friend would know. And I mean, that was a big hoo-ha because she refused to tell him to protect me. Her husband then threatened her, literally, like, if you don't, beep, 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 tell uncle, blah, 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 we are getting a divorce. It was, I'm telling the drama was ridiculous, right? Um, but at the time it felt very real as it was real. And then um, she told him where I was, they Googled it. And when you Google this course, it sounds so cult-like. And so my dad truly thought that I had been brainwashed. I mean, because all of a sudden, I, here I am, this obedient child at 30, obedient child um and i wasn't a child at work i was a fully fledged adult doing really well in my career <laughs> so here i am an obedient child all of a sudden being brainwashed and i know now as a grown-up that the biggest fear was that he would no longer have control he showed up to the event halfway through one of the seminars there's a hundred of us in a room when the coach said, okay, there's a 10 minute loo break. My dad comes in, like here I am thinking I'm away. It was the most surreal, like two worlds colliding. He comes in, finds me, his eyes are puffy. He's shaking. I'm now shaking because he looks exactly like he does when he has rage and he's about to hurt someone. So here I am thinking instantly I'm gonna die. He comes at me, grabs my arm and starts pulling, saying, what are you doing? Like, we, we have to leave. And I'm really confused at this point because here I am growing and having lots of reflective moments and he's grabbing me. And I remember like it was hurting. And I remember like trying to squeeze like my arm, just trying to squeeze out of his hold. Like, wait. And... I was really confused. I'm like, wait, what, what's happening? He's like, we have to leave. I'm like, but why? And he's like, you can't stay here. But why? He's like, these people are bad. You have to leave. I'm like, dad, it's not bad. It's great. And I'm just oblivious. I'm like, dad, it's great. You know, they're teaching us this. They're teaching us this. And then he, he was scared and he was saying all these things. The whole thing took about 45 minutes. They had to slow starting the course because of this, the shenanigans that were going on. 
they not everyone people were staring at me I was embarrassed and I've grown up you know living in don't do anything to bring shame on the family so being stared at by 99 people can you imagine how much shame I was feeling <laughs> like everything was happening at once like it was the perfect storm and um I I I remember saying, Dad, look, let me introduce you to Scott. He's great. You'll, you'll really like him. And he's like, I don't want to meet. He's screaming at me. I don't want to meet that man. You come home now. And I'm like, oh, my God, oh, my God, oh, my God. I'm, I'm even having heart palpitations telling you this story right now. <laughs> and I remember, and I was like, and I started just, I don't know where I got the strength from, but I kind of got out of his lock and walked towards Scott. And by this time, I was scared. And I went up to Scott and I was like, Scott, my dad's here, 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 my dad's here. I was like, like repeating this. And he's looking at me and Scott knew a little bit of my story. And I'm holding my phone in my hand, you know, like these Mars bar phones, the Nokias that existed back then, right? So I'm holding this phone in my hand. And he's looking at the phone. It's like he's on the phone. I said, Indian guy, back of the hall, blue shirt. Indian guy, back of the hall, blue shirt. Indian guy, back of the hall, blue shirt. And I just kept repeating it again and again and again. See, I even remember the color of his shirt. <laughs> and then he's like, Whoa, whoa, wait, what, what's going on? I said, he wants to meet, he's trying to take me home. He's like, why? He's like, because he thinks this is a cult. And he laughed. And he's like, do you want to go home? I'm like, no, I want to stay and learn what you're teaching. He's like, so then tell him. And I just looked at Scott like he's got 10 heads. I'm like, are you crazy? You don't say things like that to my dad. <laughs> like, you don't say no. I never, up until the age of 30, never said no to my dad. I just did everything I was told. And then, so this lasted a while. And then Scott said, um, again, what's going on? I said, I'm really scared. And he goes, tell him. I was like, I can't. And he's like, why? And I said, I'm really scared. I'm really scared. I'm really scared. And I just kept saying it. And he breathed. And he's like, Paro, who's making you scared? I'm like, my dad, my dad, my dad. He's like, but your dad's just standing there. And he was really calm. And the calmer Scott was, the more frustrated I was getting that he wasn't understanding me. And I said, he's going to kill me. <laughs> and then and the kill in that moment, I, I, I was using facetiously. Um, and, he, and I wasn't laughing. And he said, Paru, what's going on? Like, why, why wouldn't you just, why can't you just tell him? I said, I'm really scared. I'm really scared. I'm really scared. He's like, why? And I said, well, he's going to do this. He's going to do this. He's going to do this. And then he's going to say this and blah, blah, blah. And then I'm just, it's, my wife's life's not going to be worth living. And he said, but he's just standing there. And I kept looking at him like, how are you not getting it? And then people were talking and he was hushing everyone. He's like, everyone listen. And it was a live coaching moment, at, you know, in front of everyone. He's like, everyone listen, but don't speak. Like, I'm, I'm, this is between me and Paru right now. So he's like, and I, he kept asking me questions. I was like, I'm scared, I'm scared, I'm scared, I'm scared, I'm scared. And he's like, well, who's making you scared? I'm like, my dad. And I'm like, you didn't say that. But in my mind, I'm like, how are you not getting this? And then he said, but your dad's just standing there. And I, I'm just looking at him like, okay, what am I missing? What am I missing? I was clearly missing something because he kept repeating himself. And I thought he was the one missing something because I kept repeating myself. And then he said, okay, Paru, no one else is in this room. Imagine your dad is standing right here. It's you, it's me, it's your dad. Who's making you scared? I'm like, my dad. And he's like, but your dad's just standing there. 
And then I kind of just look at him. He goes, Paro, am I making you scared? I was like, no, Scott, you're helping me. I was like, my dad. And then I stopped halfway through and I was like, so you're not making me scared. And it's just my dad and me. And my dad's just standing there. And then I just like, my, my face was looking down. And then I just like looked straight into his eyes and was like, oh my God. I'm making me scared. And he smiled. And then there was silence, a couple of cheers and a couple of claps. And then he was still hushing them. And then I looked at him and was like, wait. So if I'm the one that's making me scared, I'm the one that can make me unscared. So it was still silent and a couple of claps, a couple of cheers. At that moment, the way I saw life and the way I operated completely changed, completely. The way I handle emotion has completely changed. The way I help other people handle emotion has completely changed. It's like, I mean, I giggle now. When people say, oh, my mom guilted me into this. I'm like, no, your mom just asked you to do something. You're the one that chose to feel guilty about it. Or so-and-so was being mean. Well, no, they said that. You felt that was mean. Um, and I'm not that inconsiderate or insensitive when I'm with in a serious conversation or with a client, but I'm, I'm, I'm sharing this to share the algebraic equation that occurs in my head now. When people say things or behave in a certain way, the way I translate it and put it through this formula and what comes out the other end makes life so much easier to live. I think that of all the unlocked moments that we have ever heard about on this podcast, yours is one of the most vivid, striking, life-changing moments. And that's incredible. And the way you tell the story is incredible. A characteristic of unlocked moments, which I think just what you've just said there really brings to life, is in a true unlocked moment that you can think back on years later and it's that vivid that you can remember who was there, what they were saying, what they were wearing, all of that. Before that moment, it's fog. It's unclear. So it wasn't clear to you at all. And after that moment, it is completely clear, vividly clear, and never, ever unclear again. That's the thing. Ownership and control of who I am and how I show up. And that's huge. It's all I've ever wanted, Gary. And what gave you the ownership and control? I took it. <laughs> no one gave it to me. I took it. And how does it feel right now, thinking about that? I don't think I've really stopped to acknowledge it, to be honest. <laughs> enough time, you know, I've just been on this treadmill trying to get somewhere, but enough time has passed now. That was, that was almost 18 years ago. So enough time has passed for me to see, wow, 
these are all the things I've done. These are all the things that I've achieved. These are all the people I've helped. These are all the lives that have changed. It feels really good. That's really interesting. When people, people say to me, this unlock moment thing, I was on a, at a conference recently and I was doing a fireside chat thing on stage and the person interviewing me said, I didn't realize until we had a conversation about it how deep it goes, how big a thing this idea of the unlock moment is. And I said, yeah, people don't get it until you get into this conversation. And then you're talking about a thing that if you introduced yourself today for what you do, you talk about what you do, which is amazing. The C-suite whisperer, the, the, the engagement with senior executives, with entrepreneurs, helping them to figure things out and find the path ahead, all those kinds of things. And you're brilliant at it. The reason why you're brilliant at it and the reason why it is who you are and what you do is somehow tied up into this incredible story that you've just told us all. But people often don't make those connections, actually. You say, why do you do what you do? Well, you know, I'm experienced at it. And three years ago, I decided to get some training and build a website. But that's not the answer. So I do workshops on the unlock moment. And I invite people to answer the question, which is the very first question I asked you, where do we need to start in your story to understand the person you are today? And for you today, that answer was four years old. That was the answer to that question. It didn't have to be. Could be 16, could be 23, could be 30. But you chose four years old because we couldn't understand this story that you've just told without understanding where it started and why you felt so threatened in the room at the age of 30, which was the thing that you needed to let go of by taking ownership yourself. And that's an incredible story, and, and, and I am so deeply grateful to you for, for coming on and telling that story. Tell us a little bit about what happened after that. What changed after that time? I didn't go home with them. I stayed. So that was a breakthrough moment. Um, I started taking ownership. I was very calm. I wasn't rebellious about, don't, there was no screaming. I was very clear. I was very calm. They'd say things and I'd be like, well, tell me more about that. <laughs> this is how I feel. And I know you say that. And you, I get that you feel this. This is how I feel. And they weren't used to that um, negotiation. And so they upped the ante with the strictness, the threats, liberation. It got worse for me. And then a few months later, I remember being screamed at and I had the laundry basket in my hand by the staircase and I just put the laundry basket down and I just collapsed on the floor crying and crying and crying. And I said, and they were still trying to get me married off. And I remember saying, if I am still single at 32, I'm moving out. And they said, and then it was just laughs. You'll never survive. <laughs> Good luck with that. Yeah, you can say what you want. Um, February 28th, 2007. A few months before, like I was 31 and a half, I was in New York um, for something. And I had had, by the way, I, um, I was put onto this project at JFK ar around the time of this course or just before this course I went on. And I loved New York. And when everyone said, why do you love New York? When I really dug into it, the truth is it wasn't New York I loved, it's who I was able to be in New York that I loved. 
and I was missing it. And then I, I remember saying to them that, oh, I'm going to, um, I'm going to move out. And it's like, good luck with that. But anyway, February 28th, 2007, I was at the end of my three-day trip to New York. And I kind of was just in a little bubble, like looking, people watching, just looking at people cross the streets, looking at the cabs, um, breathing in the air. And I just made, literally on the spot, I made a decision. I, I don't, I remember I was on a street corner around Lexington and 50 something. I don't remember exactly which street, but I remember making a decision in that moment, like, okay, I'm going to move to New York. Like, you can imagine how well that went. And I heard the nose, but I still did what it is I wanted to do. And very slowly just started networking, got a job. I was just going to pick up on that exact thing you said. I heard the no, and I chose to do something different. I just wanted to capture that moment because it's so, so, so powerful. They're allowed to say no, and I'm allowed to do what I want to do. So I started, network I started telling everyone at work that I'm moving to New York, and one thing led to another. It's like, well, what are you going to do? I don't know. I'm going to find a job at the, in the New York office. Well, do you know anyone? No. Oh, I know someone. Thanks. Introduction, interview, got the job. Um, July 2nd, 2007, I was on a one-way ticket to New York. Um, the drama that happened before that was that they would disown me. They would stop talking to me. They would cut me off in all ways, like financially, emotionally, verb, everything. And they followed through with it. Um, but I did it anyway. I, I knew I had to, Gary. I just, I had to. And every time they said, Will, blah, 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 I was so clear with who I was and what it meant to me and what I needed that every time my dad did threaten that this is over and I mean it, and he did mean it. He always followed through on his threats. He's very reliable, very. If he says he's going to do something good or bad, never has he let me down. He will do it. So when he said, I will cut you off and you will mean nothing to me, I took a deep breath, processed it, and then looked at him and said, I understand. And then like every time he saw me pack a bag, he'd sort of gang up on my mom who would be apparently the blame for me going because she raised me badly. It was, you know, if anything went wrong, it was always mom's fault and it never was mom's fault, by the way. Um, or it was my fault. It, it was just drama. So anyway, I moved to New York, worked for British Airways for two years. Um, to get promoted, I had to move back to the UK and I didn't want to do that. Um, I had a green card by the time they did the next round of voluntary severance. So I took severance, um, started my own business because by this time I, my folks were, we'd reconciled about six months after that. And I started, um, they taught me, my brother and dad taught me how to run a business. It was like doing a live MBA. It cost just as much money. It was just as painful. Um, but they were calling all the shots, which is funny because about a year and 10 months in, I'm like, well, it wasn't a year and 10. It was about a year and a half in. I'm thinking, wait, isn't this why I left to not be controlled by my family? Um, so I said to them, I said, I'm going to give you the business back. I'm going to start something of my own with what I've learned. And it, it was the same cycle. You're an idiot. Don't do it. You can lose money. You don't know what you're doing. All of that. It's a really bad idea. 
Gary, I'm not the kind of person who does things to spite people. And I'm not the kind of person who does things just because I'm told no. You know how some people say, tell me I can't, you know, I dare you and I'll go do it. I'm not that person. If you think I can't do it, I really want to understand why, because you might be right, actually. So I have my own thoughts and I will process them. And if I still believe it's the right thing for me, regardless of what you think and regardless of what you say, I'm going to go do it anyway. So I started my own business. It was a watch business from China, grit, hustle, pounded the pavements with market research and speaking to customers, hired sales groups, went to every trade show possible, had very little money. By the way, I had such little money at this point, I would order big New York pizza pies and have them last me three days because it was cheaper than buying fresh vegetables from the grocery store. It was a tough time. And um, fast forward 18 months, my watches were in 400 stores across the US, solopreneur with a couple of interns. Fast forward another six months, I got bought out for a good profit, a very healthy profit by private investors. So that was a great moment, but a moment I'm not sure I really realized how great until I was out of survival mode, because I was still in survival mode at that point, even though I'd sold, still needed the money, still needed to make sure it wasn't a fluke, and I hadn't processed the fact that it was me and not a fluke. Um, so I consulted a little bit for a while, just ad hoc, um, didn't really charge much money for it at the time because it was helping friends or friends of friends. But I'm very structured, very organized, and I had templates and methodologies and ways of thinking. And when I realized how much money they were making and how successful they were, I'm like, oh, I think this is something I could probably do formally. Um, wasn't sure how to go about it and kind of wanted the validation of someone else wanting me at the time <laughs> rather than just doing that. Fast forward a little bit more, I was hired as the COO of a productivity consulting firm and I loved it. Loved, loved, loved it. It gave me the startup culture because it was a small boutique firm, but we had very big name clients. So like on a Monday, I'd be in my jeans and sandals. On a Tuesday, I'd be on the 67th floor of a Wall Street building overlooking the whole of Manhattan, working for a law firm negotiating or influencing the executive director or the managing partner. Loved it. I was on a high. Um, when I was four, I knew that to navigate life, I had to learn to communicate in a very specific way to get what I needed, not die, make my dad feel good about it and get him to do what I want him to do. So I'd learned a specific style of communication, which was self-taught. It turned out that worked really well for me in corporate. When I was at British Airways, if there ever was a project that wasn't going well, it would be like, hey, so we need to get this done. Can you figure out what needs to happen and get it done? Like, can you influence? I would turn no's into yeses, like, a lot, like, on a daily basis. The trick there, by the way, it's not a trick. The thing I realized there, Gary, is and people would say to me, like, how are you not scared speaking to this managing partner really candidly and telling him what you think? And I analyzed it. And the truth is, if you didn't, if you weren't my dad and you didn't have a plate to throw at my head, you're a puppy dog to me. I am not scared. And I don't mean that in a defiant way. It just didn't occur to me to be scared. And because I was doing well at work and that was full of white men, 
white men aren't scary to me. Indian men used to be scary to me. Now they're not scary to me either. But white men were like, oh, they're just people who are doing good. Let me go tell them what I really think. <laughs> and the interesting thing is, Gary, no one tells them what they really think. So when I did, although I would get greeted with who the hell are you, as in that look, I would just keep talking. They would go do what I say. And then they would come back with, how the hell did you know that? I'm like, oh, well, you know, I observed this and I saw this. So anyway, the specific Wall Street law firm that I was talking to, it was so out of scope, something that I had observed, so out of scope for me to tell him. And so I knock on his door at one point. I said, hi. And well, I'm going to call him Bob. All my pseudonyms are Bob for all the men I work with. I'm like, hey, Bob, do you have a minute? And he's like, sure. And so I closed the door behind me, which obviously he looked at me like, well, what's going on? Because it was like an open door type of it. You know, everyone had an open door. And I just looked at him, breathed and said, um, permission to speak freely, Bob. <laughs> and he's like, okay. Like, number one, no one ever says no. Two, they kind of relinquish all rights to tell you off and berate you if they've just given you permission to speak freely, right? And I figured that out at a very young age. <laughs> so I said, permission to speak freely, Bob. And he's like, okay. And I said, so... When I was in this meeting, I observed this, 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 and this, and then this happened and this happened. If X is your objective, I suggest you send an email by 10 o'clock tomorrow to this group and tell them this, 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 and this. And he really gave me this look like, who the hell do you think you are? This guy was like 30 years my senior. I said, try it, it'll work. And he just looked at me and I said, I'll write the email for you. You just put your name at the bottom. And if you don't want to do it, that's fine. I think it would help. So I just went on my way, wrote the email, did it. It turns out he did send it because I heard what happened afterwards. And the next time I had a status update with him the week after, he walked out the, um, he walked out the room with the head of HR and then he turns around, walks back in and closes the door and sits down. I'm like, oh boy, I'm, I'm about to get fired from this consulting gig. Um, so I smile all innocently like, hi, how can I help? He's like, how did you know that would happen? And in my mind, I'm like, oh, you didn't see that? So I explained it. And then he's like, here's the thing. There's this going on. And this was so beyond my scope. He's like, there's this going on. How would you deal with it? Gary, that became a very regular occurrence with every client I was working with. They were asking my CEO for me to be on the project. And she's like, he's like, well, she's our COO. She was only there to fill a gap because we were a bit stretched, but she doesn't really work in the field apart from relationship building. And like, yeah, but she had so much more value. We'll pay extra. Um, and it basically turned into a thing where people said, if you did this for a living, we would pay you for it. And so basically I started doing it for a living and I, I did, I was still COO, but I did it separately. And then when I knew I was onto something and I knew that I was getting referrals and making money doing it and forget the money for a minute, I was making a difference. Like the joy on their faces, like people who would come to me saying, so I'm in a COO position, but I hate it they go and get CEO positions after working with me. Or I'm in a CEO position, but I'm really struggling with the board. They go and get a raise with the board. It's, so yeah, that, that, it kind of, it turned into, I was always meant to be doing this, Gary, and now I'm home. I'm here, I'm doing it. I love that story. When I had uh, Michael Librant on the podcast, who was, um, one of the senior coaches at, at uh, Gallup and was the sort of public face of all of their work. 
when she left Gallup after 14 years to set up her own coaching practice, she said, I'm coming home to coaching. That really resonates with the thing you just said. I love the story for exactly that reason, that it's very obvious to people that have just gone on this incredible journey with you through, through this life journey, why you do what you do. It's the thing that you're always going to be brilliant at doing because of that journey, because of that moment of clarity for you, that, that taking the power, taking the ownership, uh, and everything that you've, you've, you've built through the good times and the challenging over time, that's really powerful. A question that I often ask to people when they're trying to figure out what it is they should be doing, I say to them, what is the question to which the answer is you? Which is really a challenging question to say, what is the thing that only you can do? When somebody turns around and says, I need a person who's going to do this, and you say, the hands down best person to possibly help you do that is a person, is this person. And I hear it when you're saying, you know, you're somebody that's not afraid to say what you think to somebody who's really senior. Challenge of being really senior is very few people say what they think to you. Um, a leading CEO in the UK, I was at a dinner years ago, and he said, the last time I knew my jokes were funny was the day before I became chief, chief executive. Because after that, everybody laughed because of my job. And so he said, I really value people that don't laugh at my joke because then I know that I need to improve my jokes. But almost everybody else laughs, you know, so that's, it's super powerful. So you are the C-suite whisperer. I really love that positioning that, that you've created. Um, what, does that, what does that really mean to be the C-suite whisperer? I hear things and see things that other people don't. I'm able, to, I'm able to get through to people in a way that most aren't. That, that, that's why I chose that. And I remember exactly where I was sitting when I came up with that. Someone asked me, was interested in my services, and she's like, well, what exactly do you do? And Melinda from The Ghost Whisperer came up. And you know how she sees ghosts, others don't? She communicates with ghosts and helps them get, you know, step over into the light and get to the other side and other people can't. I do that with people, mainly C-suite people. And I, I help translate between everyone else and them. And so I said to her, I said, have you seen the ghost whisperer? She said, yeah. And I said, I'm the C-suite whisperer. And she's like, oh my God, I love that. And she started telling people on LinkedIn about it. And again, when I'm talking with people around when they communicate their personal brand to other people, if you'd shown up onto this podcast and I'd said, oh, you, you call yourself the C-suite whisperer, what does that mean? And you said, I see things that people don't see. And I would have gone, yeah, you know, anybody could show up and say that. And loads of people do show up and say that. But when you tell people your story, and I want the listeners to hear this, when people tell other people their story, then they realize it's true. It's real. It comes from a place. That is so powerful. And I always encourage, particularly people like entrepreneurs, you know, don't just tell people why you do what you do. You know, I'm trying to save the planet. Why? Where does that come from for you? Tell me where we need to start in your story in order to understand why that is the thing that you're doing today. And I think you've demonstrated so powerfully today in vulnerable storytelling 
why that's so important, why it's so powerful, why it's so effective, that everybody listening to this is going to say, well, of course that's you. And it's real and it's, and it's, and it's something you're going to be amazing at. So I love that. Um, there's going to be people listening who are going to resonate with the journey you've been on, with that family dynamic or, or with something similar that they feel or they felt in that place. There might be people listening who feel there now. You know, you described that you were 30 and you still felt that before you found that moment of clarity and control and ownership. What would you say to somebody who is feeling in their own way, in their own context, in the middle of that place, as you were at that time, what would you say to that person, given the journey you've been on and where you are now? What would you say to them? I would say do whatever it takes to spend some time alone with yourself. If you have kids, you're responsible for elderly parents, or you have a spouse, or you have a demanding job, park it. Do whatever you have to do. Number one, park it and find time alone. Number two, Dig so goddamn deep it scares you and figure out who you are, what motivates you, what triggers you, what makes you smile, what brings you joy, what you would do with a ton of money if you had it, what would you do with a ton of time if you had it. Who are you? Not because of the environment you're in, but independent of that. Deep down as a human being, what would show up regardless of what, which environment you get thrown in or put into or choose to go into? What remains so true? to who you are, it will always exist. Let that guide you. On behalf of all of my listeners, I want to say thank you for, for sharing what you've shared and being so authentic and open with, with, with this story. And I think it will really help others to hear that. How can people find out more about who you are and the work you do? Um, my website, paruradia.com. Um, if you know my name, you know my website. Um, and I'm also on LinkedIn. I post almost every day as an every weekday and I share random, Hey, so this happened. This is what I thought. This is how I dealt with it. Um, so if you want short snippets of my musings and helpful, hopefully advice <laughs> to you, um, yes, I'm on LinkedIn. Otherwise, pariradia.com is the best way to find me. Fantastic. The unlock moment is that flash of remarkable clarity when you suddenly know the right path ahead. For executive strategist and C-suite whisperer Paru Radia, it was a moment of two worlds colliding between family and career that helped her to establish her power and control to be the person she wanted to be. Paru, thank you so much for telling your story with such openness and honesty and for joining me today on The Unlock Moment. Thank you, Gary. I so appreciate you having me here. This has been The Unlock Moment, a podcast with me, Dr. Gary Crotez. Thank you for listening in. You can find out more about how to figure out what you want and how to get it in my book, The Idea Mindset. Find me on Instagram at Dr. Gary Crotez and subscribe to this podcast to get notified about future episodes. Most listeners to this podcast on Apple and Spotify haven't yet hit the follow button. If there's one thing you can do right now to help me out, then please click the follow button. The more followers I have, the better guests I can attract for you to learn from. Thanks again for listening and join me again soon here on The Unlock Moment.